Hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about William Wells Brown's uh, play, um, Escape, or A Leap for Freedom, published, uh, yeah, published in 1858. This is the first play by an African American from the United States. Um, so it's, uh, I guess it's got a relatively happy ending. It's, uh, it's not a tragic, uh, play. I was actually a little bit surprised at its, uh, at its happy ending, uh, given the ending to Clotel that, that we, that we looked at in his, in that novel. But, uh, it's, um, it's interesting. I first want to say though, that this play should probably be an opera, um, it is sort of a musical opera. There's music incorporated into the play and several of the major characters break out into song and the songs are always about freedom, uh, various kinds of some plantation songs or underground railroad songs that talk about the theme of freedom. Um, and I don't know if these were very popular tunes of the day. I didn't recognize any of the songs that were being sung or if there were uh, Brown's creations, that's possible. But, you know, obviously Brown wasn't a composer. He wasn't, uh, but as a libretto for, uh, for an opera, this kind of works. Um, it felt more like I was reading an opera at times uh, in some of the, the scenes and the, and the drama and the fact that characters kept breaking on the song. So you needed actually more, more music perhaps to really work. But I guess this, even as it stands, this qualifies as a, as a quasi, a semi-musical opera. Although technically the, the music is being drawn from real life circumstances. So it's not really a musical, you know, where people start singing out their emotions or whatever. It's uh, the music's coming from, from real life. I, I think there, I used to know there, there was a difference between, uh, Musical operas, you know, where the music is coming from the actual scenes, right? Like a, like a musical biopic or something versus something that's a, a, a true musical. Uh, so I guess it's this is more the latter or the former because these characters could presumably be singing slave songs about freedom, uh, you know, in during these scenes. Um, anyways... Um, he starts out in his preface saying that he wrote this for his own amusement, uh, not, quote, not with the remotest thought that it would ever be seen by the public eye. Um, and he also kind of says something interesting, given that he, he is so brilliant. And, you know, this really is exposed, I think, in the next work, The, the Black Man, which is not only like a work of philosophy, it's a, it's a work of history and biography, and it's, it shows just such erudition and, and knowledge. Um, collected over, over a, an education that was truncated, right? He, he didn't get an education until he, he left slavery. He got a little bit, but not much. But he apologizes uh, 
for this at one point saying, I ask no favor for it and I have little or no solicitude for its fate. If it's not readable, no word of mine can make it so. If it is so, to ask favor for it would to be needless. Um, and where else? He says something else here. Yeah, he says at the end here, the play no doubt abounds in defects. But as I was born in slavery and never having a day schooling in my life, I owe the public no apology for error errors, which uh, I've never quite seen that before because usually authors are apologizing for their errors or taking claim for their errors. And he's not. He's saying if this isn't as good as it could be, it's because I wasn't educated and that's your fault. That's on you. That's on the, the reading public for keeping me in bondage when I could have you know been developing my mind more which is uh i think a pretty honest take on it um you know i've i've, I've yet to see like an acknowledgement for an academic book saying it's like i i wrote this without any help from grants or research money because i'm an adjunct faculty member at, at some state school and i wrote this between you know changing diapers and and and, and taking you know a, a shower <laughs> You know, and really no one much helped me. I, I haven't seen acknowledgments like that, but I think some of these books are written under conditions that are not that far from that. Anyways, uh, this play, um, five acts, five acts. Um, it's all set. Well, not all of it's set, but most of it's set in the, the a farm in the south, um, owned by a Dr. Gaines, who's both a physician and he makes his main money. Um, he's got a farm and slaves, but he also seems to make quite a bit of his money from uh, being the doctor for other plantations. So he'll be the doctor that people will send their slaves to if they're sick and he'll, you know, come in and give a lump sum per year for basically being the doctor of the, of the, of the plantation. And he did that, and he's also like the, the basically the, the colonel of the local militia, which means he's also kind of a, a slave catcher, essentially, is, is what his role is going to be, the origin of the police in the South being closely connected to the seizure of slaves. So um, then we have a whole bunch of slave characters, probably too many that to, to keep track of very easily unless you read it. Um, our protagonists, I guess, outside of Mr. Gaines, who's, who's really kind of our villain. Our protagonists are Glenn and Melinda, who are lo young lovers. They're, uh, she's a light-skinned slave that Mr. Gaines has uh, a sexual attraction and affection for. Uh, this is a common brown theme. We've come across this quite a lot, so it's not surprising to see that. Glenn is her husband, and they're informally married without the permission of their masters. Melinda's owned by Gaines and Glenn is owned by Gaines as like brother-in-law, you know, so he's like in a neighboring plantation or farm or something. So those are our two protagonists. We also have uh, a couple slaves who, uh, well, they're presented as, as kind of somewhat comical, ignorant, you know, I, I'm thinking these would be sort of like the Jim Crow in later American literature type of figures. Um, and 
Brown talks about how why he uses these characters. He, he writes in his introduction, The ignorance of the slave, as seen in the case of Big Sally, is common whenever chattel slavery exists. The difficulties created in the domestic circles by the presence of beautiful slave women. Oh, then he gets onto the sex stuff there. But he, he's saying this is kind of drawn from life. And he's got, like, Big Sally, but she's just a passing character. But Cato is another kind of very complex character. He kind of speaks very strong in dialect. He... He comes off as kind of ignorant. When we first meet him, he makes a big mistake because he's like the doctor's assistant. He pulls the wrong tooth. He ends up brawling with his other slave. He gets punished a lot, um, but he's also kind of favored because he's being trained in medicine. And and Mr. Gaines, like after he breaks up a slave family through sale, he tries to give him a wife, which is kind of he sees at least Gaines sees this as a privileged position. But he also really hates slavery and and. The complexity of this character is that he very much wants freedom. He's one of these characters who breaks into song about freedom and he eventually liberates himself towards the end of the novel and uh, makes his way to Canada along with our protagonists. But when we first meet him, he seems to be more of a jokey, ignorant character, kind of someone to almost a almost comical character, but he ends up being a pretty profoundly radical figure in here so you wonder if he's he's somehow uh you know putting on a show uh for special privileges until he makes his time to escape Uh, but he also is kind of lecherous and uh you know treats some of the enslaved women that he you know as sexual targets themselves maybe like he picks that up from gains almost i i think it's it's a very complex character and i think that would require like a whole essay to really break down this character called Cato in here. He's, he's probably the most interesting uh, character we come across here. So, um, so yeah, so we got the Gaines family, Mrs. Gaines and Gaines. Their main tension is Mr. Gaines is having sex with his slaves uh, and Mrs. Gaines doesn't want it, but she also likes being rich and on a plantation and she's not really willing to take the steps she needs to break free. Um, and she ends up being very cruel towards the enslaved women under her power. Then we have, uh, so that's that's one set of characters. Then we have all the slaves. Uh, there's quite a lot of them. And then we have some slave speculators who come in and buy slaves on the cheap on the hope that prices go up or prices will be higher somewhere else and they sell them. This, of course, being a major motivator of the domestic slave trade, which reached, you know, was really alive and well up until the end of slavery in, in 1860, 1865. So um, we have those characters. We also have one northern character that we get to meet. We got a uh, named Mr. White from Massachusetts, and he ends up helping um, some of these uh, slaves get their freedom. There's a Quaker couple that helps with the Underground Railroad at the end. But those are those are minor, more minor characters. So anyways, let's jump into Act 1 here. Uh, Act 1 really does a good job of setting up our setting here. We get uh, kind of four scenes, and each scene kind of deals with something different. The first scene kind of deals with economics. And this is, we see Mr. Gaines getting a new client, a physician for a plantation. He kind of talks about this as patronage, but his plantation is doing well. It's going to benefit from this, $500 a year more. in addition to his other incomes. Um, and it allows us to meet Mr. Gaines. He's the first one we meet. Um, now, throughout the play, 
slaves move in and out of scenes and overhear things and you know and brown doesn't do too much with that but there is that i think that's a reality of life in the plantation where in even in the house where you have servants coming in and out and he does that kind of well here all right scene two is in the doctor's shop this is where we meet Cato, and we see him making pills he's being given professional duties um two slaves come in and he bleeds them another comes by with a sore tooth and he pulls the wrong tooth and then they start to fight because he's like oh you pulled the wrong tooth and they chase around and again this is where Cato originally comes off kind of a little comically like a little bit of a bumbler um but eventually Gaines comes in you know and threatens to punish Cato for pulling the wrong tooth they eventually pull out the right tooth and Cato swears revenge on this other slave named Bill um so that's the, the kind of the breakdown of that scene. And this one's kind of a little bit about work, but it also, I think, introduces this character of Cato, who I think becomes really important. Uh, scene three is uh, uh, is about family. Uh, here, we're in the slave quarters, and we meet Glenn, who's a slave. He's missing his wife, Melinda, uh, who lives on, you know, Mr. Gaines's farm. Um, and there's a lot here about you know, marriage and the morality of slavery, the, the hypocrisy of, of the slave system in keeping marriages from being as, you know, having the status and law that they, they deserve. Um, you know, and then we're going to see later in this play how marriage is used as a way to control slaves and threaten them. Um, but uh, Glenn has found his master ref- or. Uh, master refused to allow him to marry Melinda. So they're kind of brokenhearted by this. And then Glenn basically says, okay, we're going to escape. We're going to get out of here and, and make it to the North. So this kind of starts our plot in motion. Um, and then we get a really nice monologue by Melinda on the nature of love. Um, and this is a, these are universal themes of love. It's not a racialized concept of love here. It is presented as a, as a universal truth, right? Um, something that you'd see in, you know, almost any play centering around love. So this this chapter is a really good job because we get two monologues by both of our main characters, and they both are very heartfelt on the theme of love and loss and 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 ultimately about happiness. How to how to how to get that. So, anyways, that's the third scene, and then we get the fourth scene, which is about religion. Scene four. Uh, which is set in a dining room. And here we get a Mr. Pincher comes in and he's a local preacher. And this is just a really clear example of him totally oblivious to the brutality of slavery, all the nastiness going around him. Uh, but he says like, oh, the world's going to hell. People are so cruel to each other and people are so vicious. And then they just casually talk about violence towards slavery or breaking up families and things like this. So again, it's it's like we've seen this in Clotel too, how the preacher is the least aware of how his practice, his daily life contradicts the truth of religious truth that he's trying to preach. He even talks about a dream of heaven he had. And then Mrs. Gaines says, well, did you see so-and-so in heaven? And he blah, blah, blah. And then a slave jumps in and says, oh, did you see this guy in heaven? Like her old husband or something. And she just turned, the Mrs. Gaines turns to her and like punishes her for talking out of turn. And the preacher just says something like, oh, I didn't go to the N-word section of heaven. Um, 
And we even see him defending, this preacher defending the whipping of this slave Hannah, as her name. So she's, uh, she's pretty young, I think, because she's, she's used as a, she's given to Cato to marry at some point. All right. Uh, Act two. Act two has uh, three scenes. This whole uh, act deals with uh, the sale of slaves. So we have slaves, a couple slave speculators in this story. This we just meet one of them here, named Walker, and he's basically a he's a slave trader, but he, he's identified in the text as a slave speculator, which is probably a better description of him. Uh, and he wants to buy some of Gaines' slaves and sell them somewhere else for higher money, higher amount of money. Um, and then a neighbor comes in, Wilderman is his name, and he comes in and he's he's thinking of selling some of his slaves too. And the salesperson is basically kind of used to talk about this, the you know that there might be diseases and other things that might you know kill some of your slaves off. You better sell them now. He basically gives them a sales pitch, and then. Pincher comes in, this preacher, and he does go a little bit into the sin of selling the slave, of breaking up slave families. And this seems to affect Gaines a little bit, who does say he doesn't want to, um, but he doesn't anyways. You know, it's, it's like if you've seen uh, that, what, 12 Years a Slave movie where there's that scene where, is it um, Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, he's buying slaves and he's like, doesn't want it. He wants to buy both because he doesn't want to break up the family. But you know, the he's not able. He doesn't have enough money or something to do it. And he just like, okay, I'll just buy the one. And he ends up breaking up the family, um, which probably would have happened anyways. But it's like, yeah, there, there's you might have a moral conscience, but it's stopped by the dollar. Well, anyways, after hearing this, Walker promises to get religion and turns around and buys slaves. It's it's such a shallow facade is what Brown is saying um, so eventually Gaines says he's willing to sell two slaves um, uh, Sam and Hannah but he ends up selling a couple others but he's thinking about selling Sam and Hannah who are married that's why he wants to pick these two because they're like married um, and there's a discussion here on breaking up families um, but he doesn't want to sell Melinda but his wife wants him to sell Melinda so there's a big discussion between Mr. Gaines and Mrs. Gaines over selling Melinda. Uh, Mrs. Gaines, who knows he's sleep, you know, having sex with Melinda, wants her gone. Um, and Mr. Gaines sort of agrees to do that, but he instead he move, eventually moves her off to a, cat, a cottage, trying to hide her. So that's kind of a an important subplot here. But anyways, after this scene of talking about making the deal, they go out to examine the slaves. Then we get to scene two of Act Two, and we have the examination of, of it ends up being Sam and Big Sally, these two slaves, this man and woman, uh, but not this married couple. So his willingness to to keep this family together only goes like only last a few seconds. I mean, basically, once the money's right, he agrees to sell Bill, this, uh, these other two slaves. Still breaking up this marriage. And the slave was, the, the sales agreed to. Um, and then in scene three, we have, a, we have a really weird scene where Mrs. Gaines is like talking to her husband and trying to get gifts and stuff because I guess they came into this money. And 
it's kind of like, well, you get rid of Melinda, and, you know, and now give me gifts. It's kind of, it's. I think you really have like this uh, situation where she is, she can't to to give up this marriage would give up her social status and her her money and her position, right, and her access to good things. She might resent uh, what slavery means in terms of the nature of their marriage but she can't really walk away from it in the end and, and it's a very materialistic kind of analysis i think brown is giving here in this scene uh then we have a little bit short side scene where uh tapioca and cato are that's another slave with cato and he actually uh, uh moves on her sexually uh and in a, in a later in the scene he's running around he thinks someone's kind of breaking in on their lovemaking he runs out to try to stop them. It turns out to be Mr. Gaines. He hits them, and, and he gets punished for that. Um, so that's like twice now Cato's been like beaten up over, uh, over misunderstandings. Then Act 3. Um, Act 3, uh, we start with, we see Mrs. Gaines, this Italian Hannah, her, basically her, 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 her handmaid, that sam is sold off and she tells it very brutally she doesn't give her any time to grieve she just says you're going to marry cato instead and she whines about this and i mean rightfully that's probably not the right word whine i mean she she's devastated by it and mrs gain says well people don't marry for love people marry just for security or, or whatever and cato's as good as anyone else you're going to marry him and it's like they're giving cato this Hannah is a way to kind of, I guess, control him. I don't know if this is that old Roman strategy. I think this stuff was done. So yeah, that's probably what Brown is going at for here. Um, now, we get through a kind of a monologue. This Mrs. Gaines thinking about, did Mr. Gaines sell Melinda? Did he hide her? She has her doubts, and she kind of is like, I'm going to find out because men are, men are dogs. Um, the next scene, we get... Uh, the kitchen it's uh, this is scene two of act three we have the slaves at work and we have Cato and hannah interacting and Cato's like we're gonna get married and she's like no i don't really want to um now Cato has his own plans he's already kind of planned out that he wants to escape and he he i think he says it to hannah maybe we'll escape together after we marry we can go to canada together and he actually sings a whole song here about freedom it's one of the times he breaks out into song um, but, uh, before they kind of, after the song ends, Mrs. Gaines comes in and basically forces Hannah and, uh, to marry Cato. And this is a jumping over the broom kind of vernacular folklore slave marriage, you know, system. These aren't official legal marriages, right? So the way it's talked about is just jumping over the broom. I want you to jump over the broom with Cato or whatever is the way she said it. Uh, and the marriage is forced upon them. So then we get to scene three where a major, this is a really interesting scene too, where a major visits and wants to meet the colonel, Mr. Gaines. And he says something like, uh, oh, that young boy looks just like you. Your son looks just like you or something. And she's like, oh, that's the slave. It's just a really light-skinned slave. And he's, you know, but of course the implication is that that child is fathered by mr gaines right um, 
So then we get to scene four, which is in the forest, and now we can really start to get into our escape plot, our escape narrative. Um, so Glenn is just sitting there waiting for Melinda. So we have a short little scene where, where Glenn is just waiting for Melinda to show up, and she hasn't. And we find out later on why that is. And it's in scene five where we're in a room in a cabin where Melinda is essentially being kept prisoner. This is where, I guess it was Mr. Gaines hid her while he's trying to hide her from Mrs. Gaines and make it look like he sold her off or something. And he basically says, like, he tries to tempt her. He says, like, if you stay as my mistress and uh, don't marry that Glenn guy, that, uh, that other slave from the other, plant, other farm, I will basically give you, let, basically give you your freedom for all intents and purposes. You'll, you'll, you'll live in this cabin. You'll have your own land and I'll take care of you. And she curses him and rejects his offer and confesses that she's already married Glenn. Now, of course, these marriages don't matter much to these masters and they're not legal, but nevertheless, uh, she's, well, anyways, he says, you shall never see that black imp again. So good night, my lady. When I come again, you'll get, a, you'll give a more, me a more cordial reception. Good night. Um, and then, it, you know, Cato visits very briefly and they have a, a close little talk. And, um, and basically Cato's the guard is guarding Melinda. And he's like, you know, if I, if I let you go or something, I'm going to get whipped. Then Mrs. Gaines comes in and scolds Melinda and actually tries to force her to drink poison. It's a pretty horrific scene. It's trying to, she's basically trying to murder her. And she says, like, if you don't drink this poison, I'm just going to stab you. And she's able to fight this, fight her off, though. Um, so this could have been the tragic moment in the play. It could have ended here as a tragedy, but no. The, it, Brown wants to make this a happy ending. At least for our main characters, if not for, for most of the people we've met. Act four begin scene one. Act four, scene one. So it begins in a dungeon, which I don't know if these farms had a dungeon. I don't know what this is. They, I guess something was serving as a dungeon. Um, but Glenn is a chained up here. And he's locked up. And a slave comes in and says, like, you know, you're going to be whipped and it's going to be really nasty. Uh, that's the rumor around for... And then the next scene two is the parlor again. And Mr. Gaines orders a Mr. Scraggs, who's like a, a an overseer of some sort, to whip Glenn 500 times. Which is, I think is, is probably a like, life-threatening amount of times to whip someone. So, um, pretty brutal. But um, this guy comes back shortly after, all beaten up. And he says, well, Glenn basically beat me up and escaped. So, um, Glenn got out. Um, so much of the rest of the play is going to be this chase them, try to chase down these slaves. But first we have a really, another interesting scene between Mr. Gaines and Mr. Gaines. For me, for my money, these are some of the most interesting scenes in the play, um, where they discuss uh, divorce. And he basically is like, you know, well, call the lawyer, I'll pay for it. And then she's like, I won't divorce you. It's... It's um, we see how feeble is her resistance to Mr. Gaines, uh, you know, lechery and uh, the liberties he takes with his slaves. She can resist. She can say, I know what you've been doing with Melinda and I'm going to divorce you over. And he can say, yeah, what are you going to do then? Right. 
that's just the, the that there's this kind of patriarchal element that Brown really understands really well. Um, then we get scene three, act four, which is just in a forest, and Melinda and Glenn are finally together. She has managed to escape from her cabin after fighting with Mrs. Gaines and and Glenn managed to escape from the dungeon and they attempt their flights. They leave together. I think there's another song there about freedom. Something about like the Underground Railroad or the North Star, some that kind of stuff. Then we come to Act uh, 5, the final act. And this is there's a lot going on in this final act. We start out in a bar room in scene 1. And a man named Jennings comes in, and he's another slave speculator. And there's a Massachusetts man who comes in. He's named Mr. White. And he actually gives a little rant about slavery to these Southerners. He, right, he says, well, sir, I'm from a free state, and I thank God for it. For the worst act a man can commit upon his fellow man is to make him a slave. Conceive of a mind, a living soul with the germ of faculties which infinity cannot exhaust as it first beams upon you in its glad morning of existence, quivering with life and joy, exulting from the glorious sense of its developing energies, beautiful and brave and generous and joyous and free. The clear, pure spirit bathed in the oral lights of its unconscious immortality, and then follow it in its dark and dreary passage through slavery until oppression stifles and kills one by one every inspiration and aspiration of its being until it becomes a dead soul entombed in a living frame. And after giving this, this uh, a little bit over the top speech, the bar, people at the bar is like, we don't like your kind here. You better get out of here. And they, they run them off. So around this time, Gaines comes in looking for slave hunters. People are going to help him track down his these runaway slaves. Um, and somewhere in this scene, there's a, a moment where like Cato is hanging around because he's with Mr. Gaines and he's... He, uh, mistake something he does, makes a mistake and the bartender doesn't quite understand it and he gets chewed out for that and finally he gets chased um, about this um, I mean all that really matters about this scene with with Cato is he's able to s escape uh, uh, during this scene um, what well, Mr. White comes in oh this is a nice moment Mr. White comes in it's like they're chasing me is there no place where the Constitution matters here? And the bartender says, we don't care for the Constitution or nothing else. We made a Constitution, we break it. But you had better hide away. They're coming and they'll lynch you. They will. Come with me, I'll hide you in the cellar. Follow me. And then the mob comes in with Mr. Gaines. Um, so it's a, it's a busy scene at the at this bar. Next scene is in the forest, and Glenn, basically this is just Glenn singing a song of freedom to inspire Melinda, who's exhausted and ready to give up. Um, and then scene three jumps, we jump to a street in the north, and we see Mr. White with Cato, who sings another song about freedom. Uh, Mr. White uh, is praising being back in a free state. Um, and then in scene four of act five, we're in a dining room where we're with this uh we're with Quakers, and they're protecting. They're they're working with the Underground Railroad, and they're protecting Melinda and Glenn. And there's a one, the son of this family, uh, or knows a hired hand, Thomas. He uh, also sings a song. He sings a song of the Underground Railroad. Um, so especially in the second half of this play, there's a lot of music breaking in uh, to the to the story. 
but we get to see the, the Quakers helping this family out on the Underground Railroad. Now, Cato comes to the door, and he also wants his freedom. It's kind of convenient, I guess, that both these people end up on the same stage of the Underground Railroad at the same time after escaping, but it puts all our characters together, so whatever. He also wants his freedom, so he tags along. The final scene of the play uh, is set at Niagara Falls, where they're right about to uh, cross over into Canada. And just as they're about to do that, uh, Mr. Gaines comes with some police, and they're about to arrest them under the Fugitive Slave Law, which allows them to do that. Um, and here I thought this is going to be a, a tragedy. They're going to be back in slavery, right? That's how it's going to end. But no, they they decide to fight. And Mr. White, Cato, uh, Melinda, and Glenn decide to fight. They fight off the officer, and they... In the final scene, they jump on the boat and they get to their freedom. So that's the play. That's the escape. So uh, I went through it scene by scene because I don't think you're going to likely see this performed uh, or or dramatized. I think it would make a good opera. I really do. I think it would work best as an opera given the already musical nature of it. Like in the mob scenes and the fight scenes, you've seen this kind of stuff in opera, operas before. And, uh, you know, the characters are a little bit, a little bit overblown sometimes. So that, that works good for opera too. But I liked it. I, I thought this, I, uh, a, a pretty enjoyable play to, to at least read. I don't know about seeing it, but really we see a, a lot of Brown's focuses coming back in this, especially about sexuality and marriage and hypocrisy of religion and all that, um, coming alive in this, this pretty uh, fascinating play so check it out if you have access to it it's called the escape by william wells brown so uh tomorrow uh or i guess the next episode i mean to say uh i'll be looking at the black man his antecedents his genius and his achievements um and it's about 150 pages or so maybe more 170 but uh, combined with, uh, with uh, The Escape, it's about 200 pages. So it works out about to about uh, 100 pages an episode averaged out here. Um, the reason I'm going to do one episode on it is, is really the heart of it is the, the introduction, um, and which is making a case for uh, African-American brilliance in, in, in you know, their role in civilization. Basically, basically, he makes the argument black people have made a greater contribution to civilization than has been respected or appreciated and have done it under more difficult circumstances than whites. And he also makes the argument that, uh, like, you can say Africa was, was uncivilized, but you could say the same thing about Britain just a few centuries ago. Um, and, you know, you know, even he quotes David Hume in making this case, saying, you know, Hume point goes back a few generations and finds barbarians in Britain. Um, that might be true of Africa, but that's not who we are now, right? And he also makes an argument against colonization. Basically, he's saying black people helped build America. Um, of course, it's a, it's a little bit of a cliche now, but uh, at the time, it was, a, I think, an important argument to make. And then the bulk of the book is biographies of, I think, like 53 or so 
African Americans, um, and they're varying length, but they're they're all relatively short. He's not trying to do full biographies of these people. He's just trying to um, blast you with uh, all these vignettes of great black men and their achievements in science and literature and politics and, and whatever, um, in whatever area of life. So that's uh, what we'll look at next time. So I think I'll go through the essay in, in a lot of as much detail as necessary, and then I'll, I'll kind of pick out some of these vignettes. I'm still reading through some of them, to be honest. But... Um, but that's what we'll do next time. So if you have access to the black man, his antecedents, his genius and achievements, uh, you know, read through it. And in the next episode, I will give you my full thoughts on that, um, that book. So anyways, uh, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Well, you won't be worried when, when the sun go down. When the sun go down. You'll never be worried when, when the sun go down. When the sun go down.